We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Laura Sextro, CEO of The Unity Project and your podcast host. On today's episode, you will hear from Dr. Pierre Corey, pulmonologist, ICU critical care doctor, and co-founder and president of the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance, FLCCC. Dr. Corey has been at the forefront of speaking out for medical freedoms and exposing the truth of COVID-19 protocols and vaccine safety. We discuss the new FLCCC protocols for vaccine injured patients, the horrendous California bill AB2098 that if passed would prevent doctors from practicing medicine. Dr. Corey and his license have already been the target of investigation and everyone in this country should be aware of this proposed legislation that could lead to the total dismantling of healthcare. All right, on today's episode, I have Dr. Pierre Corey. He is Uh, an incredible person. I have had the privilege and the honor of getting to know him, um, not only through the FLCCC, but he's on the Strategic Advisory Council for the Unity Project. And I got to tell you, this man is uh, probably doing some of the best work that I have seen in this fight. And I'm just really honored to have you on and honored to know you. Um, Before we dive into this, Pierre, why don't you introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm uh, Dr. Pierre Corey. I'm a uh, board certified uh, board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, and critical care medicine. And uh, uh, prior to COVID, I used to be the uh, the chief of the critical care service at the University of Wisconsin and the director of their main ICU there. Um, I left relatively early on in COVID, and I um, with Paul Marek, uh, we helped start and found the Frontline COVID nineteen Critical Care Alliance. And all we've tried to do since the beginning is come up with the most effective treatment protocols for all its phases. And that's really all we've tried to do. Well, and I think you guys have actually done an amazing job. I've had the opportunity to listen to you testify in front of, uh, you know, Ron Johnson's hearing, and I've listened to a lot of the protocols that you guys have put together. So I think that's a really good place to start. Let's talk about the FLCCC, how and why it was founded. Sure. Well, it's interesting, you know, when when COVID started to come towards the U.S., you know, it, you know, those stages of like acceptance of COVID, like, oh, it wouldn't happen here. It's just a China thing. Like, I still remember those those stages. And but, you know, I, I still remember like once like Lombardy and Italy got hit and, you know, we I had colleagues who knew Italian intensivists and we were hearing stuff from the front lines in Lombardy and then Seattle gets hit. And I knew guys uh, in Seattle and and then New York. Right. And so but as we knew that this was like, you know, game on, you know, remember, I'm a pulmonary critical care physician and I noticed this was a pulmonary and critical care disease. And so 
I was already trying to figure out what I wanted to be treated with if I were to fall sick. I mean, we saw people filling ICUs, they're running out of ICU beds, they're running out of ventilators. And I mean, it was really scary stuff in the beginning. And so even though I kind of formulated a protocol, we got to talk about Paul Marek, right? So Paul Marek is a good friend of mine, colleague. He and I had um, became very close because we got really interested in a... Um, in an area of critical care medicine dealing with sepsis or actually around high doses of intravenous vitamin C. And now Paul is famous for his protocols and, and he's put together protocols for sepsis. Okay. And so he immediately, when this is happening, he started posting stuff on his medical school website, you know, different like supplements, vitamins that he thought were helpful to try to fortify the immune system. So he was already kind of putting out protocols, but the FLCCC started when two kind of different doctors, one from New York City, one from San Francisco, who knew Paul, Paul's very well known in our specialty, has been for decades. Mm -hmm. They reached out to him. They said, hey, you should get some guys together, put together a group of your colleagues. And, and why don't you put out a protocol? Because, mm -hmm. Laura, if you remember, uh, the NIH was and everybody was saying, you know, stay home until your lips turn blue and then you can come to the hospital. We'll give you a ventilator. I mean, it was it was absurd. Yeah, that was that was crazy to me. And maybe at some point we can talk a little bit more about it. It was crazy to me. It seems, I guess, from a lay person's perspective, you know, never before in history from a medical sense, have we had the government saying in the medical institutions, at least it felt like the medical institutions that we, you know, we now know it was the NIH and really more government led, um, to stay home, right? Wait until you're literally in an emergent situation. That's so critical. You need to have advanced medical intervention before you seek out any care? I mean, you know, it's interesting because there was a lot, like you said, there's a lot of stuff that came from the feds, but I will tell you that it took a while for that machinery to, to engage. Mm -hmm. the early on, what I saw was this intellectual abandonment of, which is, or, or it's sort of what I call the, the perversion of evidence-based medicine. What I saw, because I, again, this is why I, I, I resigned from the University of Wisconsin is because mm -hmm. as we were preparing, to get hit. Cause remember the coast got hit first. Uh, you know, I probably mm -hmm. saw my first COVID patient. Oh, April. And mm -hmm. that was, you know, a month after New York got hit and Seattle got hit. So mm -hmm. it took a little while, but I will tell you that we were trying to come up with a protocol. And when I would propose things that I thought would work, they were being dismissed. There's no trials to support that. You're going to hurt someone with that. And like everything got shot down. Nobody wanted to do anything without a randomized controlled trial. And, and so there was this hyper-conservatism. And when I tried to argue that these are unprecedented mortalities, they're clearly dying of a lack of treatment. And I made pretty good arguments of why they, we should use blood thinners and why we should use corticosteroids. Uh, they didn't want to do that. And so, so you know, I was still coming out with my protocols. And, you know, when we started to see patients at the time, the hospitals really hadn't put their iron fist on everything. Some of us were treating the patients what, what we thought was best, but it was sporadic. And the administrators and my, and my leaders, they wanted us to all do the same thing, which I hate. So kind of one size fits all yeah, approach. Everything, every, they wanted everyone doing the same. They didn't want Dr. A doing this and C doing this. So... So, so that was what happened, but, but, you know, when these doctors reached out, we put together zoom meetings. Um, we didn't even know, I didn't even know how to set up a zoom or sign into zoom. If you remember what that was like, <laughs> <So> like <laughs> oh, yeah. 
times a day, but you know, I still remember those first few Zoom calls. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was, so Paul invited four of his close colleagues. It was myself, Joseph Rohn, Umberto Maduri, uh, and Jose Iglesias. And Umberto and Joe are like hugely published, very well known in the field. Uh, Umberto has been one of the world experts in corticosteroids and in critical illness. Joe Verona is the editor of a few journals and we've all written chapters and textbooks. And so it was, it was a pretty like very accomplished group. And we, all we did was exchange papers. We were reading papers. We were talking to doctors around the world and we were figuring stuff out that was working. And, and so anyway, people encouraged us to build a website. We built a website and we started to put out our protocols. And we, we, we always said, we're gonna evolve them with the data. And as we learn more, and, and the first thing we worked on was the hospital protocol. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I testified in the Senate in May of 2020. Mm -hmm. And at the time I went in that I testified that the, there was a critical need for corticosteroids in this disease. And I did that at a time when all national and international health agencies do not use corticosteroids. And so I got I remember, killed, yeah. for that, killed for that. Two months later, it became standard of care worldwide. Right? Once the trial showed it worked, we already knew it worked, but, you know, you needed a trial. So, so anyway, that was kind of the our first kind of public attention was around corticosteroids. And I don't want to say we won that battle, but you know, what we were advocating later became validated. Sure. And, and so that's what we were. And so we built a, a, a hospital protocol and, and we continued to study all the trials, all the papers. And in the fall of 2020 is when we became convinced that the data for ivermectin was overwhelming. And it was, and still is, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we built an early outpatient treatment protocol and we tried to get that out to the public because we knew that disseminating through journals wasn't working. There was so many papers, no one was paying attention. Everybody was looking to the NIH for guidance and they weren't providing guidance. And so we actually held a press conference. I don't know if you know this, but be, the, the three days before my testimony in the Senate, with Joe Verona in Houston, who was on TV like 10 times a day, he's very well known on Spanish language stations, a lot of the local stations, they talked to him. Um, and we did a press conference there and it got some attention that day, but it was kind of like water under the bridge. And we came out and saying, this is an effective drug. It should be you know, systematically deployed for anyone sick and didn't get any attention. But then, that, then my testimony happened and that's what kind of put the FLCCC on the map, which that the testimony went viral. And so suddenly like the FLCCC was like in hyperdrive. Um, wow. We are starting to get a lot of attention, requests for lectures. You know, we got invited to, uh, to, to present to the NIH treatment guidelines. We got their ivermectin recommendation changed to, they, they had said, don't use it out of a trial. And after we presented, they moved it to neutral, which is they said, there's insufficient evidence to recommend for or against, but it was something. But anyway, that's kind of where like, the FLCCC exploded. So, so that's a, a good question though. Um, so you say you got some traction. Your hospital protocol, were you, are you seeing any, any um, receptivity from hospitals and, and actually no. using this hospital protocol? Not at the hospital level, but okay. we're hearing it from intensivists. So individual mm -hmm. intensivists, depending on the hospital they're in, remember like big university hospitals are right. rigidly controlled. If you go to kind of community, community or rural hospitals, there's, there's like one guy running the ICU. I mean, he's got free reign and autonomy and, and we right. were getting lots of feed. From the doctors who were using our hospital protocol, they were like, 
thank you so much. My patients are getting better. I'm keeping them off ventilators. But it was real, at least in this country, it was, we, we called it like um, closeted intensivist. You know, they, they were doing it like under the table, under the radar, <laughs> they're quietly yeah. treating patients with our guidance. Remember, Paul had immense credibility in our specialty. I mean, he's, he's the most published practicing critical care doctor in the history of our specialty. And wow. so people listen to him and they listen to us. Yeah. But outside the country, we were getting, we were definitely getting hospitals like in Germany. We understood mm -hmm. that our hospital protocol was actually widely adopted in the Ukraine. It actually, I think it became uh, almost their hospital protocol in the Ukraine. So like we knew that different and Indian doctors were using it in India. So, I mean, we were getting a lot of feedback, right. but not at like a systematic yeah. or hospital level. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, it seems like people, like you talk about, about the uh, credentials and the experience that, that Dr. Merrick has, and obviously the experience that you have. And I, I was really shocked that, um, the people like with that caliber weren't called upon and listened to from, uh, you know, three letter acronyms for the federal government, whether it be, you know, the NIH, the CDC, um, or other government agencies, even the world health organization in figuring out the best response. And I know there were some studies done. Um, I, I think there was one that was done in India where you had uh, an entire village or town that was given a, um, a protocol essentially to prevent COVID, correct? Yep. yep. Uh, what, what was that study? Let's talk about that. So, there was a few studies. I mean, people were using hydroxychloroquine early on. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember all the doctors in Italy, when it first hit, before they knew everything, and they were all on hydroxychloroquine, right? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In the beginning, a lot of people were on hydroxychloroquine. Um, you know, the studies on, on prevention, both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin work. And so mm -hmm. in different areas, they knew this more than in others. I would say Peru is kind of the epicenter of ivermectin. There's a city in Peru called Iquitos. And I happen to know this, but they, in Iquitos, very early on, by March or April of 2020, in Iquitos, they knew if you take ivermectin, mm -hmm. you won't get sick. Or if you take ivermectin, oh, wow. you won't die. And so it was huh? widely known in, in, in Iquitos, Peru, and in other areas around the world. But again, these are like low and middle income countries. And, you know, none of that is going to make a systematic change. But, um, you know, people were figuring it out that these medicines were working as a preventative as well as an early antiviral. And so, um, but again, like I said, it was fragmented and scattered. And, and then going back to your other point, Laura, about like, I learned so much about the system, how it runs, how it works. And like those federal agencies, right, they have lots of highly pedigreed doctors mm -hmm. who are considered experts in their field, but none of them were using early off, uh, you know, off patent repurposed drugs. So none of them knew that it was working, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, you're right. There is no process in that system to really seek out insights from frontline doctors who are trying to treat this every which way like they mm -hmm. in, in fact what i have to be really cynical here right they don't want to learn from us because our system is really built there's only one highway to recommendation and approvals and that is literally the pharmaceutical industry's highway they, they that, that whole bureaucratic and, and regulatory process 
there's no way in for repurposed drugs. It just, there's no, our system is designed to produce what it, it, it produces, which is novel, highly profitable, pharmaceutical industry manufactured medications, period. Right. And it seems like, look, we all know that there's a lot of um, conflict of interest and corruption with regard to the pharmaceutical industry and the federal government. And um, so clearly that's, that's a big red flag. But it's, it's, right. it's baked into the system. Like there is no defined system for repurposed drugs. Uh, and then when you look at the NIH, right, they, they, they could, they could have funded big studies, well done studies. Now, they did do that. <clears throat> Hydroxychloroquine was these corrupt uh, trials that used it. I don't really want to go into all that corruption. I mean, we can if you want to, but I, I've, I've spoken about that at length. I mean, right. I, I'll, I'll yeah. stick to like kind of just what I learned, which is that we were learning mm -hmm. stuff that worked and it was totally discordant with the way we were seeing the system behave. And the mm -hmm. system was not reacting to evolving knowledge and successes in treatment. And, mm -hmm. and in fact, what the system was doing was openly attacking anyone and anything that suggested that a generic drug worked. And, and I didn't know that then, but I didn't know that that testimony and our organization launched ourselves into the crosshairs of, of a pharmaceutical army, which seeks to destroy any off patent repurposed drug. And so that, that's when my life went sideways. Like I, what I saw happen after my testimony and everything that we're advocating and disseminating, I just couldn't figure it out. I didn't know what was going on, like why I was getting attacked. My credibility was getting attacked. I was seeing hit jobs and Paul was, and our hospitals were like attacking us. And because we were public and contrarian to what I like that Paul calls it, the gods of science and knowledge. Right? <laughs> so like, like apparently a debate or learning something that goes against what they know it was, it was bizarre. I thought, not that I thought there was going to be like a ticker tape parade for us, but like, oh, yeah. I actually thought we were going to like start winning here, meaning like sure. this pandemic and right. that didn't happen on the systematic level. But as you know, Laura, people trusted us and people listened, yeah. doctors listened to us, different lay people. Mm -hmm. listened to us, and they, I think they saw our credibility. They saw our integrity. Like we, you know, we weren't out there trying to make money off of ivermectin. Like we, we had right. no financial interest. We were just like doing what we thought doctors are supposed to be doing, which is sharing knowledge and trying to help patients. So, so like, although like I can get really kind of uh, negative about my memories of there, um, they, they were, they were balanced by like lots mm -hmm. and lots of positive. I mean, so many people reaching out to us. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. You know, I use your protocol. I was feeling really terrible. I got better, or I gave it to my mother, my father. I, I, I don't want to champion the sneaking in, but like we had so many testimonials where they would take mm -hmm. up the medicines, give it to someone in the hospital, they would get better. And so, so it became kind of a, a really wild ride after that. Yeah. And that's an interesting, I think, segue into a conversation about ethics and the, the doctor patient relationship and, um, the fiduciary duty and the government's role in all of this. And you may or may not have heard that in the state of California, we have a, a bill that's 2098. And this bill is, it's pretty horrendous. Um, it's, um, you almost can't believe it when you hear it, but it's you basically, it. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it just, 
just to kind of sum it up, the bill basically states that as a, as a medical professional, if you have a patient and you say anything against the COVID narrative, as an example, if you if you advise a patient that they should not take the COVID-19 vaccine because it might have adverse um, events for them, then your license can be subject to review and, and you can be just, you know, you can have your license removed as a medical professional. Um, you know, as someone who's been early on in this fight, who early on and incredibly effective, I, I would say you, you personally, um, and Dr. Merrick, you guys are probably personally responsible for saving thousands of lives for doing what medical professionals are supposed to do and, and, and actually honoring your oath, your Hippocratic oath of practicing medicine and first do no harm and try to find the, the best um, approach, not the, not the one size fits all. And I want to talk about in a, in a few minutes about why the one size fits all is not usually the best approach in medicine, sure. but what are, what are your thoughts on, on bills like this and, and, and how that, and how that will, what will the outcome be for the medical institutions? I mean, it, it, it leaves me, like you said, it, it, it leaves you almost speechless. I mean, it's so, and, and to use the term Orwellian, I mean, it's, and, and you know what I, one of the first thoughts, it's the least self-aware legislation that I've ever, like, you literally have people writing, they're writing in authoritarian, totalitarian edicts into law. Mm-hmm. And these are generally <laughs> liberal, purportedly liberal and or Democrat, you know, like I know California is very, very left. Um, and and my, my political beliefs generally tend on the left, not this kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, it's just, it's astonishing the kind of language that they're using. So they're basically saying there is one scientific consensus that's been established, that's unimpeachable, and anyone who tries to impeach it should be delicensed and and not be allowed to practice medicine. So so one of the thoughts I have about that is people writing that legislation have, that shows you how effective the propaganda around the vaccines are. They, They literally have everyone walking around with this arrogant, absolutist belief that they are safe and effective and how anyone could challenge what is now a commandment, right? From from the like safe and effective has been established. There's no there's no way you can argue that anymore. And so part of it is just that is a really cartoonish, farcical, dystopian consequence of massive, massive propaganda. And so part of it, part of it is I look at it as these are very non-self-aware, but I also see the people writing that legislation as just these horrific victims of propaganda they don't understand that they're being lied to yeah it's um, got to be that i mean because it don't, it's it's actually counter to the scientific method right isn't the scientific oh, method to you're supposed to debate you're also supposed to right. open question and data changes right particularly when you're dealing with a fast mutating coronavirus for whom you're using vaccines that are two years old. And like, even right. so if I was in California and I said, well, to a patient, you know, I think it's a little weird. They're using a two and a half year old vaccine or a two year old vaccine. And we're on our like 87th variant. Right. You know, even that I guess yeah. would be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and they're, you know, by, if you look at the, the, the language of the bill, um, it it's, I think it's very by design ambiguous as to what they constitute as 
um, you know, against the COVID narrative, uh, which again, when you're this ambiguous, it could be anything. It could be, you know, if you recommend vitamin D, um, and uptake in, in vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, you know, go out and exercise and stay healthy. That could potentially be deemed as against the COVID narrative. Deliberately vague and, and yeah. thus, thus punitive. They determine, mm -hmm. they can determine what the truth is. And so, I mean, listen, it, it's so obvious to most of us that that is a, a complete bastardization and corruption of of what it means to be a doctor, what it means to be a scientist, what it means to be researching and, and to want to openly debate and share insights, right? And so, I, I mean, I'd rather not talk about that legislation because out of the spectrum of all the insanity that I'm seeing, it's so far out there. Now it's, it's pertinent to you because you're a, a, a yeah. citizen of California and, and many of your listeners are, um, but like, I don't even know what to say about that legislation. Yeah, well, here's so here's my concern, right? It, unfortunately, it's it seems like it's it's flying through these committees, right? It's gonna it's gonna be up for a, a floor vote, and it's met with less resistance than you, than you would believe. It's it's actually it's looking like it has a good chan uh, chance of passing. And what I always find is it seems to me that California, for better or worse, tends to be the barometer in the, for for the way the country is heading. So my concern is. You know, here right now today in the state of California, we're facing this just outrageous bill. It could very likely in the next few years, the bills like this could start being authored and, and voted on throughout the entire country. And I, it's, I, I cannot wrap my mind around this. And I feel like what it's done is it's, it's going to erode at the medical system. It's going to, it's going to, people are going to lose faith. Laura, I've said this before, the world has lost its mind and it's been driven by propaganda and censorship. When you have total control of information, so propaganda is deliberate spreading of false information. That's a more modern mm -hmm. definition. Yeah. That's been happened relentlessly and rapaciously. And then there's been mm -hmm. censorship of all the important information of what drugs work, what the toxicity of these vaccines are. And so when you have that, you have pe pe people behaving completely insane they've lost their mind and so i don't know which is a more insane the bill you're talking about or the one which wanted 12 year olds to consent without oh uh, well that's actually so that, i don't that know is about right. i don't know where yeah, no. i know it's crazy well the, that one's being voted on symptoms of the same disease which is right. it's a disease of horrifically false uh information and censorship of valuable information yeah. it's been propagated throughout media, social media, and scientific journals. And so when I see the world behaving like this, like I don't have an answer for that because sure. I think the root cause is the immense power that the federal agencies have. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of what's happening is that FOIA request, which is we discovered, right? And this is published in the news that the Department of Health and Human Services gave $1 billion dollars mm -hmm. to media companies in order to support a favorable narrative yeah, yeah. to support the vaccine campaign. And sure, so, sure. so that 1 billion, which came from the feds is one of the main drivers of why we're here mm -hmm. and, and why people are behaving so strangely because they've been lied to by a propaganda campaign, which we know where it came from. It came from a, an agencies that are under total regulatory capture, right? So let me ask you a question. Do you think that doctors have an obligation um, to seek out an information 
and have a deeper understanding if they're making recommendations to patients. And I'll give you an example. Um, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, I asked him, I just said, Hey, out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on the vaccine? Cause interestingly enough, his doctor did not out the gate, have it like come, you know, sit me down and say, you need to be vaccinated. Right. Many do, and so, okay. many do, but, but this one did not. And so out of curiosity, I said, you know, I just curious what your, your viewpoint is on the vaccine. And he said, oh yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I think I'm a big believer in vaccines. It was just more of a generalization. And he, and he said, you know, I think I'm actually going to go get my fourth one today. Um, in the same breath, he also said, look, I have a friend who's been vaccinated four times and he, he might die. He's, he's seriously ill. And so I said, well, so then let me ask you another question, kind of a follow-up to that. How do you as a medical practitioner educate yourself about this particular vaccine, the safety, the safety of it, what's contained in it? Are there any adverse effects? And he really, his answer really was, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I just, I believe in the vaccine. I'm a believer. And, um, you know, so what I took from that was that whatever he was, whatever memo they were getting from the CDC, they were just buying lock, stock and barrel. And so I guess my question to you is as medical practitioners, do they, do you guys have an obligation to really understand what you're recommending to patients? Well, yeah, no question you do. I mean, if you're going to start vaccinating or recommending some, you should educate yourself here. But here's the problem is most of the medical system, most doctors look to the journals and in particular, the high impact journals. And so this is how information is controlled in academia, which is that when you talk about high impact journals in medicine, you're talking about a handful. So it's like New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, the Lancet, British Medical Journal. And, and it's well described over decades that those are under the control of pharma. And so when you look to those high impact journals and all you're seeing is favorable data for the vaccines with headlines and editorials, mm -hmm. and then you're looking to the agencies and they're in lockstep, you're hearing the same messaging, I would argue that you've done due diligence. You've looked to the medical literature, you've seen the data, the data conclusions are there. And so why would you listen to anyone else? The problem with that is that you have to understand, I didn't know what I knew three years ago that I know now. Like now I, I'm broken. I can't even look at journals. I know exactly how much they're controlled. I always knew that corruption was there and I knew that the pharma, they got in some questionable studies and you know, I, I knew that they'd done stuff and there's celebrated cases. I didn't know it was total and complete and always. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what I know of the medical literature now, I believe nothing. I believe wow. nothing. But by definition, I know that whatever appears in a journal is what they allow to appear in a journal. So you, there, there's no paper wow. that's going to damage pharma or a product of pharma that's going to appear in a high impact journal. Now, for second and third tier journals that don't drive media or don't drive headlines, you can find good stuff there. Um, but when you try to use that to counter the narrative from the big journals, they dismiss it as a low quality journal and a low quality study. Mm -hmm. so, so what I learned about the medical sciences and how it's controlled and how they're, you know, it's, it's again, it's a system that produces the results that they want. And so mm -hmm. it, it's it's very demoralizing, uh, Lord. It's, it's really demoralizing. And, sure. uh, but again, wow. this this transformation and this insight that I developed, mm -hmm. it's, it's because I became a world expert at ivermectin and mm -hmm. I got to see what they did. And, and I, I'll tell you just a quick anecdote. 
when I told you before that everything started to go sideways and like I was getting attacked, I had to leave a second job. The FLCCC was under like PR crises every day. Everybody was attacking us for everything. And one day I got an email from a guy named William Grant. He's this Australian professor who's one of the world experts in vitamin D. And I got a brief email from him. He says, Dr. Corey, I am recognizing that what you what you're suffering is you're the you're the victim of a disinformation campaign against ivermectin. I recognize that what they're doing is what they've done for decades against vitamin D. And he sent me an article called the disinformation playbook. And it was on the website of a organization called the Union for Concerned Scientists. And I read this article. It's not long. It's really easy to read. And they basically just describe the five main, it's called a playbook, the five main plays that pharma does in order to destroy science inconvenient to their interest. And it's like yeah. the blitz, the diversion, the hook. They have like these weird names. But when they describe what pharma does, it was like light bulbs were exploding in my head. I was like, oh, I, I've seen them do that. I've seen them do that. Like as a world expert, I mentioned, I saw every single play. I saw it playing out in the media. I saw it playing out in journals. And so suddenly I got to see the world in a different way. Like I had almost like a primer or a template. And mm -hmm. once I was given, it's almost like the teacher's edition of a textbook. Like I was like, <laughs> oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. Okay. And ever since then, it allowed me to see how medicine and science is really being run. And, and so that was the first transformation. The second one was Bobby Kennedy's book, um, The Real Anthony Fauci. I, I mean, that That's one, a phenomenal book. That blew the lid off of the whole mm -hmm. system. And so I'm still a doctor. I'm still practicing medicine. Um, I'm relying on myself and a close network of colleagues to learn like, you know, you know, we're focused on treating the vaccine injured and long haul, which are two complex diseases. Sciences aren't helping us. There's no such thing as a, a vaccine injury clinic. There's no ICD-10 code for vaccine injury. Right. Uh, the publications on, on vaccine effects are very fragmented, again, in second and third tier journals. But I'll tell you, we're doing, we're doing a good job. We're learning a lot. I'm learning a lot from my patients. And and so I'm kind of like outside the system, but I'm, I have my own private telehealth practice and, and I'm, my patients are happy and I'm very challenged by them, but I'm helping them. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now, because I think it's really important work. And we had the opportunity to talk to Bree Dressen, who I know you know as well. She's in charge of uh, React 19 and the, the battle that she's been fighting is just, it's really heartbreaking uh, and the community that she's helping to support. Um, but, but what's What's sad is that, you know, she, she really has a group of doctors, I think that she works with that are somewhat covert because they can't openly talk about the treatment of, of, of patients because it, she's gotten so much pushback because the medical community won't even identify um, these individuals as having been vaccine injured. So that in and of itself is an uphill battle. Once they kind of cross that hurdle, then it becomes, how do they get the treatment that they need? And I know, um, I, I know that you guys are putting on a series of seminars um, and information about the FLCCC's new protocol and the treatment of vaccine injury, as well as, as long haul. And I was really, really excited to hear about that. So tell me about that work, because I think that's information people want to hear. Yeah. So, you know, obviously everyone recognized that long haul became a major issue, right? It, it, mm -hmm. it, interestingly, you know, long haul is, it's kind of a form and has a lot of overlap with uh, chronic fatigue, uh, myalgic mm -hmm. encephalitis, what they, you know, which, which certain doctors have been battling for years, 
But now you had it on a massive scale, right? Because there's so many millions of infections and even 10, 20, 30% of those, you had all these patients who were not well after COVID. You know, they survived the acute phase. And so we put together a protocol for long haul a year ago and we knew it was effective against post-vaccine. And we, we wrote it in the introduction, like this is also appropriate for post-vaccine, but it was kind of hidden. I don't, it was too subtle. I think people didn't know that it, that we were recognizing post-vaccine injuries. And so that's been out on our website for a year, but I will, I, I, again, I want to give credit to Paul. A few months ago, you know, Paul started to befriend and talk to these vaccine injured and you know, he was extremely moved by their plight, especially the plight of like Brie and others who've gone to the NIH, who've been advocating for all the vaccine yeah. injured. And, mm-hmm. and he really got motivated to try to put together like a formal sort of mature scientific document, putting down everything mm-hmm. that we know about this syndrome. And, you know, right now that document has like 165 references we're learning yeah. stuff every day. So he kind of put together the scholarly document, which is, mm-hmm. I don't want to call it a protocol. It's more of a, a guideline or treatment strategy approaches you can follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very complex. So we, we can't be that specific about it. But he kind of did, he built the backbone on which he and I can both put this forward. Because I've been treating patients. I've been, right. I've been using my own little protocols and they've been evolving and so I'm learning from Paul and Paul's learning from me. So it's, it's a really nice collaboration, which is because Paul's not treating the patients. I'm seeing a lot. And so like I helped organize and order. And also we collaborated with others, Laura. Like we, we had a couple of big meetings, like seven or eight different clinicians, and we all exchanged a lot of information inside it. So it's, it's very much a collaboration. Um, and, and Paul is, is really been doing the research and the papers. And it's as evidence-based as we can. And so we put that out a couple of weeks ago and a lot of positive feedback. People just really appreciate that we're recognizing this, that it's an mm-hmm. epidemic. I mean, the, the data doesn't lie. I mean, the data in VAERS and everything, I mean, there's millions of people injured. Oh yeah, it's, it's, millions of people injured and, and killed. How, let me ask you a question about long haul. How do you know if someone has long haul? Are there, are there diagnostic tests or is this, um, yeah. you know? It's a good question. So, so long haul doesn't have like a truly specific definition, but it has a good working one. The one that I use is it's basically someone who presents with a constellation of symptoms. And there's probably two or three that I find are like kind of cardinal symptoms, meaning like almost everyone with long haul has one of, or all three of the main ones, but they can have six or seven. And it's usually those three symptoms, which begin Sometime after COVID, and, and what happened when it's long is many people recover from the acute phase. Some of them even go back to work for a time. So like the classic kind of presentation is someone got sick with COVID, usually not that severe where they went to the hospital. Then they got better, went to work, and then they'll be like, you know, I don't know, one day at work, I just, I, I had no energy and I had to go home early. And then from that day forward, then you hear the rest of their story. And it's this other bunch of symptoms. But the three main ones are this new and very strange form of fatigue where they have no energy or normal activities tire them in a way they've never felt before. Exertion will send them backwards. So if they try to do something, like if they feel okay one day and they go out and they try to go out or do something with a friend or family, they'll find themselves in bed for two days. So it's called post-exertional malaise. 
And then many of them will complain of some sort of, and I'm using quotes here, brain fog, right? And so brain fog, I kind of hear the same three things over. It's some like, I just can't remember things as well. Sometimes I have trouble finding words. So there's like word finding difficulty. And then others feel like they just can't focus or concentrate for long periods. And right. many of them are so sensitive to this because they were very highly functioning, uh, mm -hmm. oftentimes professional or technical people who find that they can't do simple stuff. And then, you know, even some extremes, like some people would be like, I was driving my car one day and I stopped 30 feet before the red light and I had no idea uh, why, Yeah, you know, so, <laughs> so they start to see that they're doing odd things. Their brains aren't acting normally. Mm -hmm. So it's like brain fog and fatigue are the main ones, but then there's a whole host of others that I see, you know, from different neuropathic symptoms, uh, especially in the vaccine energy, they get a lot of like uh, numbness, tingling, burning pains, uh, weird movements, shakes, um, and, and, and different neurological symptoms. And, and then long haulers, um, they'll develop insomnia. Some of them will develop anxiety that they've never been anxious before. Like some people like are really laid back people and suddenly they find that they're really worrying. They have anxiety. Some feel very low and depressed. And so, like I said, there's a number of organ systems complain, but everyone can tie it to you know, what I call temporally associated with that episode of COVID. Right. Like they were fine before COVID and then everything went south within weeks of getting COVID. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm really, really excited that you guys are doing this work. I think it's, it's incredible. It's so important. Um, tell everyone how they can access the work that the FLCCC yeah. is doing for, and, and all of your videos and protocols. Totally. So FLCCC.net is our website. We're a nonprofit like you guys. Um, we're, we consider ourselves kind of a medical education organization. Uh, we're just trying to put out what we think is good, clean medicine and pragmatic advice. You go under the header of protocols and you can look at our protocols and the documents and the supporting references for them. Um, and like I said, we're evolving. You know, Paul's updating that document almost every other day. And so we plan to have regular updates the more we learn. But, you know, the, you can go to our protocols for prevention, early treatment, hospital treatment, long haul and post vaccine protocols. We kind of split everything up. So there's a number of protocols on there and then just different updates and things that, you know, we talk about and we try to share information on. So it's really at our website. Um, you know, I, I, you know, as separate from the FLCCC, I have a private practice, which is just focused on really treating long hauls and post facts. And we do see patients in, in many states. Um, uh, you know, we see patients in California and that, that's just uh, drpierrecorey.com. So drpierrecorey.com. Um, and so we're happy to help. Well, we'll put links um, in the podcast to both FLCCC as well as to the work that you're personally doing within your own practice. And sure. thanks for being here with us today. Um, I, I'm always, as always, I'm blown away by the work that you're doing and you're just a fun guy to talk to. We always have a good conversation. Yes, um, I really, really encourage people to follow the work that the FLCCC is doing. I think a lot of people know who you guys are, but you know, for, for some reason, someone is watching this and they don't know please look at the website um, and please follow the protocol and keep up the good work. I really appreciate it. Laura, great chat with you again. Thanks a lot. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. 
we hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.